Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, we have Steve Gabatorta, who is a uh, motivational speaker, life coach, professional coach, and probably a bunch of other titles that he'll explain to me. Uh, this will be my second podcast where I'm pushing our first sponsor, uh, Distill. Distill makes sunglasses, wallets, iPhone cases, keychains. Uh, they've been nice enough to give us a promotional code. So barely legal podcasts, no spaces, no caps, no underscores. We'll get you a discount uh, on their website. I love their sunglasses. I wear them every day. Very cool stuff. We don't get paid any ad dollars. So this is not me trying to make money. It's just trying to give you a gift of a discount on a product that I really love. So check out distillunion.com, distill the great product. Uh, so Steve Gavitorta, uh, I know you through a mutual friend, right. Jalal Khatib, who is a uh, podcast alumni and a dear friend of mine that I've known <laughs> forever. And through uh, his introduction uh, of you to me, I've gotten to kind of bone up on what it is that you do and kind of what your philosophy is. Uh, but before we even get into any of that yeah. stuff, I want to learn a little bit about you. Are you a Florida guy originally, or did you move here? No, originally a Pittsburgh, a Steelers Pittsburgh, guy. Yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah. You're my second. Yeah. I know I had a Philly guy, which not not exactly, you know, kind of the same, yeah, but not exactly the same. Yeah. 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 So how long were you in Pittsburgh? Uh, born and raised uh, 20, well, up to age 19, and I went to college two, two hours north a Pittsburgh small liberal arts school called Allegheny College, where I played uh, D3 football, and then moved back down for my first job out of college with a company called Beecham Products, okay. where I was schlepping toothpaste and oh, wow. all kinds of fun things. Yeah, so I spent two two more years, so whatever that is, about 21 or so years. Gavitorta sounds Italian to me, am I correct? Uh, very Italian. What yeah. part of Italy do you know? Uh, Florence. Oh, Florence wow. And, and Florence is my favorite part yeah, of Italy. Beautiful. Have I, you been? Yeah, Bologna. Oh, yeah. Uh, Na- uh, not Na- yeah, Naples. Yeah. Yeah, Naples. Uh, Milan, I mean, all beautiful. I've been over there twice, and uh, both times I went, it was head and shoulders above the rest of my best food. Oh, my God. Amazing food, yeah. the temperature, the climate, the people, the scenery, the, all <laughs> right. of it. We The first time I went, we did we – did, well, first we did Paris, then we did Rome, Florence – Venice. And I was pretty exhausted by the time we got yeah. to Florence, but Venice, never do Venice at the end of your trip to yeah. Italy because you're so damn tired oh, and walking yeah. over those step oh, bridges yeah. is just horrible. So, yeah. You- no, I've had my best little unassuming bowl of pasta I ever had in my life in Bologna. I mean, yeah. just simple. Bit, Less is uh, more. Yeah. Exactly. The Americans suss it up with too much crap. Way it's, too much. Yeah. Yeah. Simplicity. So, uh, can I assume Italian Catholic family growing up? Well, or? my father was the black sheep of the Catholic family. Oh, okay. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I was uh, baptized Catholic, but I was not raised a Catholic. All so right. To speak. Yeah, he was kind of the uh, black sheep. His two sisters were very religious, very Catholic, but he was the uh, the bad boy, the smoker, got a little bit of trouble and whatnot. Like to mix so, it up. Yeah, but uh, my parents both didn't discourage me from any religion. Sure. I just wasn't brought up with it. And what about siblings? I'm only child. Are you? Yes. I love, oh, this is going to be so good because I I too am an only child. And it's one of my favorite conversations to have with other only children. Are are you good at basic math? Am I good at basic math? Uh, Yes, basic math I'm good at. I was born uh, October of 1962. My parents were married April of 1962. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, do yeah, the math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You figure, <laughs> figure that out. But they're still together. So, Well, it's interesting, though, <laughs> uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the 
nature of what you do and what you write about is very much a uh, social study, uh, psychological, that sort of thing. And I really am always just amazed and so interested in the impact of being an only child versus having a lot of siblings have on who we become in life. Uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at that. In fact, this Saturday is a one year anniversary of my mom passing and my dad passed the year before that. And as an only child, as you might imagine, it was kind of a becoming an orphan in my forties was not to be melodramatic, but it was kind of an interesting, interesting uh, transition. So, so growing up in Pittsburgh, you said you were a football player. What else were you into? Uh, Wrestling and uh, you look uh, like a wrestler. Well, actually my sport was football. I was a little, guy. I Fast was, though, I bet. I was. At yeah. age, I don't know if you have any conception of when you're seventh grade, but in seventh grade, I weighed 75 pounds. Like 12 years old or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Lot, little guy. Yeah. Uh, that was my first year of wrestling too. And I was first up. Wrestling seventh, in seventh grade? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my hometown. I don't know if you know much about Western PA. Massive wrestling. You, you guys are working in like coal mines at like four, aren't I'm you? I'm from a coal yeah, mine Yeah, town. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, my dad was a meat cutter. Go figure. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> did, you, did he get to bring home some good cuts? Of, I mean, Well, I was lucky. I ate well growing up. Both parents were good cooks, number one. Number two, my dad was a meat cutter for Kroger for years. Oh, sure. Then after that, he ended up buying his own produce market. Oh, wow. So I helped run the produce market. So I had the best of both worlds, man. I love food. Yeah, you Italian. ate well. Yeah. And what did your mom do? Was she stay at uh, home or? She was an admin for the local high school. Oh, okay. Her first job with the high school is this. You'll love this one. This may describe a lot of my issues. Sure. She was attendance office lady oh. for the high school. Can what you was your What was one? your attendance like? I was. I never missed a class except my senior year, um, where I actually missed three classes. And when you were late for three classes, and when you were late or missed a class, you ha- either got SWATs or detention. Oh wow! So was I was a, a private school or a public school? Public school. Okay. So I was a senior. They give you SWATs in public school? Oh yeah. I'm an old dude, man. Yeah, I guess long. back then it was yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> a different world. But um, I go to my mother. You know, this is my third one. She looks at me. She didn't play around. She goes, detention or SWATs? Yeah. Being a senior, I was kind of a smart ass. I said, I'll take the SWATs. First time ever. That will be the last Last time. time. Oh, yeah. It took the wind out of me. So I blame my mother for my first... yeah, Swap. first knockout. Yeah, your first TKO. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, high school, and then you said you went to college in Allegheny. Uh, what was your degree in? Economics. Economics. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and what was the what was the driving factor with you in economics? Did you just know you wanted to go into business, or it, it was the it was a small liberal arts school, great school. I'm yeah. very fortunate I went there. I actually didn't have the grades or the SATs to get in. I actually got in because I played football. Okay. But um, I'm fortunate I did because it it really I grew as a person going now again. You had to learn to write. You Not to date to, you, but what years are we talking that you're there? Um, oh, my goodness. 81 through 85. All right. All right. Yeah. Huh. But um, it's a small liberal arts school, but the closest thing to business, as you were saying, was economics. Right. So I almost minored in psych, which I wish I would have. But I was an ec- economics major and uh, yeah, wanted to uh, be in the business world. Now, you said you were shilling uh, toothpaste. Was that in college or once you got out? And once I got out. Okay. And was that in Pittsburgh or was that somewhere else? Yeah. Started in Pittsburgh. It was a company at the time called Beecham Products. I, I Was there wasn't there a Beecham Bubblegum? That's or? what everyone's they, yeah, they it's assume, different. No, different, different yeah. company. Yeah. Uh, Beecham ultimately became a division of GlaxoSmithKline. Okay. So, I sold everything from uh, healthcare products, uh, feminine hygiene products. Uh, 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 detergent. And this was in the late 80s, right? 
Uh, mid eighties. Mid eighties. So yeah. you're 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 shaking hands and kissing babies. You're not. There's no social media, no platforms, no, no emails. I mean, no. you got to go and meet these people. It, well, yeah, I, I was was responsible for calling on minimally eight grocery stores a day. So I had to go to the manager, speak to the health and beauty aids clerk, and try to sell our product, basically. And um, did they give you any training in sales, oh, or did you kind of have to develop it on the? No, on the... I am. That's another turning point in my life. They were a lot of the upper level managers at Beecham Products were former Proc, were formerly at Procter and Gamble. Okay, and back in the day, Procter had the they were the catalytic of training. Sure. So I re received a ton of training, uh, four step call process or four step presentation process, ten step call process how to handle objections, uh, great questioning and listening skills. In fact, the reason I went with that company was the director of training and manpower development. His name's Santo LaQuatra. You know oh, wow. Italian. Yeah, Santo hired me and um, I fell in love with training back then. And that's why I ultimately pursued this business. I'm currently it's I'm currently very, it's a very interesting uh, thing that I think about. And it's, and as a business person, uh, okay. I have, in, in, the longer I've done this, realized how poor of a salesperson attorneys are dealing with clients, which is, Interesting, given how good of a salesperson they're supposed to be right. persuading a judge or a jury. You know, it's this du duplicity. It's like, how can you have the skill set and talents and use it so well here yeah. and be so horrible at yeah. it there? And there is a book. You probably heard of it. Have you ever read Hidden Persuaders or heard heard of Hidden Persuaders? No, no. So this was a book. Uh, I think it's Dog Hammerschild. It's one of my dad's books. He used to talk about all the time, and it just went through a lot of stuff that's even unspoken sales tactics, like why grocery stores put things where they put that's them, right. and line of sight, and and you know, just just the hidden what are the what are the things that you don't realize are driving you and and so uh i'm sure there was a lot of interplay between that what you learned in your training big time oh yeah there's definitely patterns in a grocery store to drive consumers certain areas there's re rhyme and reason for the end caps what's displayed i mean it, there is a lot of psychology behind what happens in a grocery store well and now it's it's almost become you know 1984 or brave new world because you know, now we can talk about, you know, New Balance sneakers. And, uh, you know, later on when I search for where I'm going to get pizza tonight, a bunch of New Balance sneaker oh, ads yeah. are going to pop up oh, on my yeah. phone. And they have, you know, geolocations where oh, if yeah. you search something close enough to this business, they're going to populate. Oh, so yeah. it's it's just gotten crazy. Yeah. Part of my career, I spent two years with a company called Cattle, actually three years with a company called Catalina Marketing, which is based in St. Pete, Florida. I was at the time in New Jersey, but we did targeted based couponing right. where we read the uh, purchase behavior via loyalty cards. Right. And at the point of sale, we were able to execute coupons. So if you were a Pepsi buyer and one of our clients was Coke, we would shoot you a Coke coupon. Right. To, to switch from right, a competitor. Right. Or if I bought a small size of uh, mayonnaise, they'd, they'd know that and they'd shoot me a coupon for a larger size trying to upsell me. So it's, it's so amazing. is amazing. Well, 100%. My brother-in-law owns Elite Marketing, uh, Bill Kolachowski, and uh, I he did a lot of Ramada and Cruise Line stuff and it was a lot of the mailer pieces. And I'd sit there and, you know, there, people are trying to make your mail look like IRS letters or yeah. they were putting like beach sand smell in the envelope. So when you <laughs> opened it up, you got oh, the yeah. walk, you know, all these things that they're just oh, trying yeah. to lock you in. Oh, so yeah. there's, 
you know, the the appealing to people on various levels is such an interesting yeah. t- uh, topic to me, especially yeah. as an attorney. So, which is about driving customer loyalty. I mean, you have a cus- you have a loyal customer, you have them for life. Right. And that's the that's the uh, the heartbeat of a, of a company and a brand is to have those loyal com- uh, brands customers. and companies customers that don't easily switch. Sure. You know, if I go in a grocery store and they don't carry that item I'm highly loyal to, I'm going to walk. I'm going to go find it. Would you agree with me, though, that over the past 20, 30, 40 years, the loyalty of a customer has become very fickle? Like, I mean, where it used to be, there was only three companies that you could go to. Now there's thousands. And not only that, but it wasn't in front of you. We're being marketed to every second of every day. Well, I, I agree with that. I think the internet has a lot to do with that. Sure. Uh, one of my clients is a mattress company, and I can't tell you what. I'm sure you imagine what's going on with online mattresses, the purple bed. And, oh yeah, uh, tough the mattresses. Oh, another sure. one where people aren't as loyal to the brand as, as much as they are convenience. I'm going to get convenience a mattress and price online. point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're battling that online business, which is changing. Uh, the the dynamics of that industry significantly for not only the manufacturer but for the re- uh, retailer brick and mortar retailers right well too. right so Beecham how long did you do that for about ten years okay and then what what came after uh, same type of uh, essentially all these jobs were in sales and marketing so I called on still retail. up in that part of the the country or no I so well, I started off in Pittsburgh for two years as a what was called a territory manager calling on retail grocery stores then I was promoted to what was called a headquarter account manager. In Detroit, Michigan, I spent two years up there calling on the corporate headquarters of retailers, like a Publix headquarters sure. rather than a retail store. Then I left them and I went with a company called Warner Lambert. Uh, in that, but uh, during that time frame, um, syndicated data, RI and Nielsen loyalty card data started becoming big, and I was actually good at that, analyzing data and being able to drive actionable insights from that data for a sales call or for a sales team. So my job started transitioning more in the sales analytics. So sure. I spent five years with the division of Warner Lambert, same type of products, uh, Listerine, uh, Dentine, Trident, selling again to grocery stores, wholesalers and whatnot. I spent five years there, left them, went with Catalina Marketing for three, and then ended my career with a company you may have heard of uh, called Eastman Kodak. Oh, sure. Yeah, they uh, fell by the way, said just like the horse and buggy did. Well, yeah, yeah. Film and yeah, I still drive by the bookstores and remember the bookstores and I'm a big yeah. fan of uh, buying vinyl and yeah. you know those kind of died and then resurrected oh, yeah. a little bit but now with covid you know I don't know what's going to happen yeah. to a lot of these places yeah. so how did you make your way to florida uh my it's it's a great story you'll love this one uh, I was in Detroit Michigan working as a, a headquarter account manager and we had a big merger uh-huh. and uh, I had started visiting florida to visit some of my friends in at Beecham products so uh, with this merger, a lot of the old Beecham guys kind of lost out in that merger. And one of the gentlemen who was a district manager in Tampa, his name was Al Clements. I loved Al. I used to always visit him. And I said, Al, if you retire, resign, because he wasn't happy with the merger. Right. Call me up. I want your job. Because that job was the next logical move for me, sure. which was called area area manager, which I managed the headquarter account managers and, and territory managers. So lo and behold, Al calls me and said, I'm resigning, you know, put your name in a hat. So it wasn't easy just to throw your name in a hat. I had to leave my region. Right, yeah. So the district manager was okay with it. He said, you have to talk to Jim, our region manager. And Jim Shanahan was a six foot two guy, intimidating, distinguished, former football player, good looking dude, gray hair. Yeah. I mean, he carried with him a lot of clout. 
but he was also a little bit known as a womanizer. Oh, okay. Like women. So I meet with Jim and Jim says, yeah, I hear you want to move to Florida. Uh, tell me why. And and I gave the right answer initially. I said, listen, it, they're struggling down there. They need a lot of training and development. They're not making their numbers. I can come in and turn this team around and, you know, increase sales and whatnot. And he goes, try again. So I said, sunshine, good look on women, beaches. He goes, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, oh, yeah. yeah. Don't give me the bullshit party line. <laughs> yeah. Give me the, yeah. True story, man. And uh, yeah, I ended up coming down here. Uh, I want to say it was 80 or it had to be 89 or 90. So have you been here since then? I had a, well, not brief stint. I moved to New Jersey for two years with Warner Lambert. Okay. And then lived in New York City for five years. Oh, wow. What yeah. years were you in New York City? Um, I want to say 2000 and 2004. I was there for 9-11. You were? Yes. Where were you? I was working for an offshoot of that company, Catalina Marketing, near the Empire State Building. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, yeah, we I didn't. We were, there was a television station in the lobby, TV in the lobby, not television station, TV in the lobby. And we kept going from our office down and watching, watching this it. happen. And I didn't see the towers fall. However, when we left, you could see the plumes of smoke. So you weren't in the smoke. You didn't have to like walk off of the burrows, No, no. We were on 34th, right next to the Empire State Building. Sure. And wow. I had to uh, go north. I lived on the Upper West Side. So I had to walk north, thank goodness. Crazy. But, uh, hey, I've had a couple of guests on the show who were there at the time and the stories, you know. I, I was in law school at the time and I remember walking through the, the main office and seeing it there. And, uh, you know, that was up until that point, I don't think anything registered with me as yeah. my Vietnam or my Kennedy assassination or whatever. But that was really kind of a, in, in some ways, the end of an age of innocence, you oh, know, yeah. which now it's seeming uh, more and more yeah. frequent, you yeah. know, these huge life events that yeah. were, uh, dealing with, which is kind of a, a segue into the reason that you're here. Um, so this is your second book that you wrote. That's is correct. That correct? Yeah. And what's the name of your book? Uh, in defense of adversity, turning your toughest challenges into your greatest success. So when did you, when did the seed of the idea to become an author come into your mind? How is it that you got into being more of a consulting person than, than in sales? What, what, was I had said, I uh, my first hire was a gentleman named Santo, who was director of training and manpower development, and he became my role model. Okay. He's still my role model and my mentor today. Oh wow! And Santo ended up leaving Beecham to start his own consulting business. So as I progressed through corporate America, I saw where companies weren't investing in the training and development like they used to, and people were floundering or struggling. And I knew the importance of a foundation of, of selling skills, of, of questioning listening skills, of managerial skills, leadership skills. So I always had a passion for that. Right. And after the Kodak, Kodak scenario, I was actually thinking about leaving uh, corporate America prior. Uh, but really, my time at Kodak was a little disappointing because uh -huh. it was during... It was the waning age of, of film. Yeah. And they had their head in their sand. I was dealing with a very difficult retailer in New Jersey called ShopRite, who was tough and... Um, I just was not enjoying my corporate job anymore. So I really started pursuing uh, a consultant. What was the first uh, book that you wrote? It's called Reach Out Approach. Okay. Yeah, it's more about communication skills. And uh, now, did you work with a writer on these or did you 
do it all yourself. No, I worked. I had publishers on both of them. Okay. So I was. How did you find that process? Was it was it easy? Was it the hardest thing you ever had to do? Somewhere in between? No, it's through mutual relationships. Uh, A woman that I was uh, a member of with the national. Not finding the the writer, but the writing process. Oh yeah, it's I'm I'm a I'm a it's writing is difficult for me. I mean, even though I am a decent writer. Uh, I can get something laid on the page, but I cannot take it to the next level or make it pop or sound right or right. Or, or make a jump. I get it down and that's it. Okay. It's a rough process for me. Even if I, when I get it down, I have to walk away for a little bit, come back and revisit it. So I'm good structurally and foundationally, yeah. but creatively, I'm not as good of a writer. So now, were you consulting already by the time you did your first book or did you kind yes. of do those both at the same time? Yeah. So was that first book kind of the culmination of your initial experience in consulting? It was my passion for communication sure. skills. I'm certified in a multitude of I saw assessments. That. Right. Uh, something called DISC. Are you familiar with DISC? I read your bio and I think I read what it stood for, but yeah. you'll have to you'll have to tell the listener what it is. Yeah, DISC is a behavioral assessment. It's an acronym that uh, talks about four basic behavior styles. D stands for dominance. I stands for influence, S stands for steadiness, C stands for compliance. And there's various attributes that help you understand each style. They're how they be, how this each style behaves, how they communicate, uh, how they make decisions, how they deal change, risk, and conflict, and how they're motivated. What I do is really help my customers first understand their respective style and how to better sell based on that style, how to better lead based on that style. Um, especially by understanding those people there. I was understanding your audience. Correct. Well, so this is so germane to what I do as a trial lawyer, because you're, you know, you're picking your audience. You're trying to set an audience up to be receptive to your argument, to be receptive to your style. And you have varying degrees of success depending on, you know, what your jury pool is and stuff like that. But there's two parts to communicating. They're understanding your strengths and then understanding what resonates with your audience. Well, that was the key to writing this first book. What I found, I'd taken a lot of behavioral assessments, uh, Myers-Briggs, which I'm certified in that, to DISC, social styles, and the trainer would come in and train us and they'd say, here's your four styles, Here, here's what you are, and don't let the door hit you in the butt when sure. you leave. I mean, there was more to that, but a lot of people are saying, what do we do with this now? How do I use this with my customer? So what I've done, I've developed a process so as a salesperson, I can profile through instructional videos, I help people profile the disc style of those people they're interacting with. Right. So if I'm in a sales call, I'm going to start, based on what I teach people, start helping them profile that that buyer so he or she can adapt their style for effective communication. So if I'm a type A personality, I'm gregarious, I'm talkative, I'm extroverted, I'm very forceful. If my customer is very uh, analytical, very reserved, very introverted, if I come at them too hard, I'm going to shut them down. down. Exactly. So what I do is help people understand first their style. So learn their style. Secondly, help them read the behaviors of others then how to adapt their style for effective communication, sales, uh, presentation skills, things of that nature as well, too. So it's really being fluid, knowing who you're talking to and be, being more the chameleon to help that help make better connections with people as well, to build trust through communication, basically. So another one of the things that I see that you have experience or training in uh, is emotional intelligence. And that is a concept to me that. I would say in the past five years has just resonated with me uh, big time. Uh, So I started going to therapy 
within about the, that same time frame. And so just a, a little bit of background is I've been an attorney since 2002. 2005, I started doing family law. And as you might imagine, I run into a lot of uh, people who maybe emotionally have not developed yeah. the way that others might. Yeah. And, you know, marriage is difficult for, for people who are relatively well adjusted and have some uh, modicum of emotional intelligence. But so much of what I see in my divorce practice and a lot of what I see in politics, I see emotional intelligence is such a, um, uh, Missing element, missing element, or it's, it's, it's the grass that no one waters. You know, yeah. they spend so much time yeah. training their intellect or yeah. training their skill set yeah. and completely leave that aside. And, you know, you mentioned alpha or kind of aggressive people. Yeah. A lot, a lot of these divorces, I have, you know, business owners, these people who've just done so well financially, they've risen to the top of their field, but they don't know how to be a partner in their marriage right. or a parent right. or a, and it's it's just amazing to me because it, it, I think it's equally, if not more important than your intelligence is your is. emotional I, intelligence. So speak on that if you can. Yeah, you can. Let's look at IQ first. You can be a Harvard edge grad, Harvard ed grad, master's degree or doctorate and be the smartest person in the world. But if you are prone to anger, if you are prone to losing your patience or you shut down when you don't get your way. You're no longer effective. Right. If I am leading someone and I'm irritating my staff around me, I'm, I'm, they're, they're not productive anymore either. So I think that's very harmful. I had a former girlfriend like that. She's the smartest, brightest person in the world, but she had no clue about how she came across and irritated a lot of people around her. So she had high IQ. But very low EQ. So if there's a if there's a beacon out there that just comes to mind when we're talking about that, it's Zuckerberg, because we've got an individual who no question intelligence is just yeah. off the charts. But he literally can't put a sentence together. Yeah. And every time he tries to testify to the Senate or whatever, or goes on these, he just I just see the whole hole being dug deeper yeah. and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And it's funny because I just think it's that disparity of development there. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how we kind of change what we emphasize in society or change what we value in society. But, uh, you know, it, another person that, and I don't want to make it political, but I look at it a lot as a president, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I would argue that his emotional intelligence is not necessarily uh, optimal for the position that he holds. And I think and, sometimes he gets himself in trouble, yeah. necessarily in trouble. Yes. And I think certain of the policies that he wants to push forward and certain of the things that he wants to try and do, if he could just conduct himself in more of a, I don't want to say political, but kind of inclusive rather than exclusive manner, he might have more success in what he's trying to do than by just He's a hammer and everybody's a nail, you know? Well, if you look at the DISC uh, survey, he's definitely a high D. I mean, yeah. Donald Trump is high. He might have some influencer style, too, because there is a good people side of him uh, as well, too. But, I mean, he's definitely that high dominant style. And what I think something that would help him realize is not all people are that style. Right. <laughs> not all people will receive that. You don't use the same tool for every job. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So, so uh all of that stuff just uh, it, it amazes me. So, so that was the first book that you worked on, and then you got into this into 
in the events of adversity as kind of yeah. sharpening your sword, as it were. Yeah, that's my baby right there. That's what I'm So at. was there some specific adversity that you went through that kind of got you thinking about this? Or was it just something that you were seeing in the world? Or how did that come about? It's a great story. Let's go back to Pittsburgh. Sure. I'm from a small coal mining town, as you right. said earlier, called Burgettstown, Pennsylvania. And Burgettstown was known in the day for immigrants because they came there for the, as you said earlier, coal mines, steel sure, mills. like a lot of Lithuanian up there, my aunts from there. and I've, Every ethnic yeah, group. Sure. I grew up on my block with every ethnic group sure. possible and in Burgettstown too. Truth be told, I don't understand political correctness in many ways because it didn't exist in there was the the, uh, the, the, the 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 absence of it. Oh, we yeah. all teased each other relentlessly. Sure. I wanted to be called nicknamed Dago. Uh-huh. My cousin was nicknamed Dago, and I was mad. Everyone's like, "Were you offended?" I'm like, "No, I wanted to be called." Yeah, Dago. it was a badge of cur- a badge yeah. of honor. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up with every ethnic group possible, but again, it was an influx for coal miners, steel mill folks. So about five years ago, I told my dad I had never seen the house he grew up in, and he. Took me up Your to parents a, still around? Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Very took cool. me to a little village within our hometown called Langloff. That is where a lot of the coal mining and steel mill families lived back in the day. And as you can imagine, these aren't attractive houses. They're tenement houses. Yeah. They all look the same. They're all built the same. Nothing special about them. Very plain looking. So my father, who's a uh, successful entrepreneur by his own rights, said, that's where I grew up. Points to another house and said, that's where Dr. Moropus grew up. Points to another house. There's where Dr. Strassi grew up. There's where Dr. Spinogians grew up. There's where Barry Alvarez grew up. Do you know who Barry Alvarez is? Sounds familiar, but I... He's the winningest football coach at University of Wisconsin, their current athletic director. And it really hit me. What a great story in this day and age of complaining or not being grateful for what we have or giving up too easily or uncontrolled emotions. This story needed to be told. Here you have... All these immigrants coming from everywhere around the world, not speaking English, let alone each other's language, became doctors, lawyers, businessmen and women, entrepreneurs, uh, uh, soldiers, uh, athletic directors, pro athletes. It was really a great story. The problem is I'm not a biographer. Sure. So I spent a few years, I interviewed a lot of these families and the stories they told me, Josh, were amazing. I mean, you hear some immigrant stories now, I'd say nothing compared to what these people faced. And um, it was just so motivating. And the driving factor that I found in each of these families I interviewed, I interviewed Barry Alvarez too, was that adversity made them, it didn't break them. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fork in the road, you know, and uh, it's a hundred percent true. And, you know, not to segue too much, but the way we met was through uh, Jalal Khatib, who owns Tampa Muay Thai. And I understand that you've trained there. And so if you have any interest at all in the fight sports, Mm -hmm. you look at a lot of these athletes who have excelled to the top of their sport. They had the most dismal lives growing up, just poverty, abuse, you know, absent parents, death, destruction. And it really is, you've got a choice. I don't know how much of it is a choice and how much of it is just kind of, 
you know, happenstance, but it can either make you or break you. It oh, really yeah. can. Yeah. So, well, you look at so many leaders, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, the adversity that they faced was incredible. Entertainers, Oprah Winfrey. Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. The things they faced and overcame, you know, that again, made them ultimately who they were meant to become. And I talk in my book up too about our perception of adversity. What is our perception of it? And I talk two parts, accepting, number one is accepting that adversity is a part of life. You know, a change, ambiguity, uncertainty, like we're going through now, is a part of life. Did we expect a COVID sure. <laughs> pandemic? No, but it is part of adversity. It's a part of life. So once we accept that, we're less surprised when it happens. Does that make sense? Well, it, it makes so much sense. And so uh, if you look over here, I have a, a statue of Sisyphus. And I don't know if you know the myth no, of Sisyphus. But basically, he was damned to eternally roll the boulder up no. the mountain. Yeah. And... uh that was the theater of absurd and philosophy, existential kind of theory, but that there is no rhyme or reason. You, you know, you're not owed anything. Yeah, you, you know, right. you, just because you work hard doesn't mean you get the that's desired right. re results. Right. Just because you're a good person doesn't mean good things happen to you. Just because you're a bad thing doesn't, oh, bad right. person doesn't mean bad things. There's almost no rhyme or reason. So to accept that there's no rhyme or reason kind of keeps you more open to the possibility Absolutely. of being knocked off your feet Absolutely. or knocked down. So, And that speaks to the second part of that. First, accept that adversity is part of life. Secondly, acknowledge that it's placed in our lives to help us grow, transform, and evolve. So I, I know my toughest times in my life, one of which we can talk about, you asked about my adverse situation, but most of my difficult times turn out to be my best times. Sure. And there's no doubt I learned valuable lessons and I grew as a, a person when those difficult things happened. Do I go out and seek adversity? No, but I'm much more aware of that it is meant to be and that, it's, that I can now take advantage of it. I say, if adversity strikes, we must first assertively face it. So many people don't. Right. Uh, secondly, hopefully overcome it, but at the least learn a valuable lesson to prepare you down the road as well. Too. Well, and, and in my younger years, I think I'm getting better about it as I get older, but I used to uh, 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 impute kind of the universe being against me when something yeah. happened, this kind of yeah. paranoid, uh, you know, yeah. type of thinking. And as I've gotten older, I've understood, no, it's not the universe out That's to right. get you. It's just what happens. For instance, uh, my wife and I recently made a, a pretty big financial decision that I was uh, somewhat averse to from a risk position. Yeah. I was like, I don't, it, it put me in a less comfortable. And the week after we decided to pull the trigger on it, the AC in my truck broke for 1200 bucks. Oh the window on the back of our house shattered yeah. for, uh, another thousand bucks. And then I had to pay an insurance bill for 3000 bucks. That's how it happens. And it used to be, you know, the, the old Josh would have been that, that's, this is God bad telling me, you know, this is God telling bad me bad it was a bad here. move. But now I'm just like, Every year in my life, I can point to yeah. these expenses. These just happen to come along now, yeah. and I'm not going to let yeah. it knock me down. But um, you, you said a couple things there that I wanted to uh, mm -hmm. jump on. The first was um, how you can become stronger or learn. And I think this year, our country and society has, not for the first time, but really in, in more, the most acute uh, way that we've seen it face adversity, both racially with what we've mm -hmm. seen with what's going on with the police and the Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter and all that. And then obviously with this pandemic, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who've been on the show, a lot of friends of the community who are having to close their businesses down. Oh, I have yeah. a lot of musicians who are on the show and they can't play live. Oh, they yeah. can't make a buck. A lot of people who own bars That's and right. clubs and they can't. And so this is 
this is kind of testing their metal. Mm-hmm. And again, with the uh, things that we're seeing in Portland and Chicago and across the country with the protests and the riots, it's, you know, adversity. It, mm-hmm. it turned up, turned up. No doubt. Full blast. But what I'm hoping is, is that it's going to bring about some lasting change in how we talk about mm-hmm. race, how we talk about culture, how we deal with that, how maybe we train our police differently, how we are the respect for police, both sides of the fence. Right, you know, right. it, it, I think it's such a as negative as it can be seen, I think it has an ability to bring about a lot of positive. And, and then also with the COVID, have you have you thought about your book and your philosophy in the context of those two things? Oh, absolutely. I'm doing a webinar. I mean, for me, too, I'm a consultant. So business has been a little different. You know, not, a lot of, sure. not, not a lot of people are looking for sales training, right? Trying now, to stay afloat. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So, but I've been able to transition to a pretty popular web webinar, very much based on my book called Leading and Self-Managing through adverse and ambiguous times. And it's been hugely popular. I've gotten business where I didn't think I was going to get much business before. And it's really popular. And I think because so many people are seeking answers to how do I handle what's happening now? We don't, uncertainty, ambiguity, adversity, you know, there's, there's skill training for being a salesperson. There's skill training for be a fighter. We're educated through reading, writing, arithmetic, but where's the class on how to deal with adversity in life. Right. There's, there's really not one. So this has been a huge topic uh, that has been a big part of my business and a uh, big focus. And I've been able to help people, thank goodness, during these crazy times with some insights and skills to help them look at these times again, accept that it's happening, but what do we need to do now moving forward as an individual leader or in your business as well too. Times like this is truly when individuals and companies can get a competitive advantage. Well, so, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, my so brother, my, upside. my brother-in-law who I've, I, I mentioned earlier, he, he's a lot lately been dealing with these import export deals where everybody's trying to get sanitizer and everybody's trying to get mm-hmm. face masks and hand wipes and all these things. And I'm watching this and I was like, people are going to make and lose fortunes off of yeah. how, we have marketed this pandemic yeah. and marketed what what is good. I mean, there's no better example than toilet paper. Yeah. By whatever act of the gods, you know, we we got to the point where we said toilet paper is going to be important. We need to have a lot yeah. of it. And it was just gone from the shelves. Um, you know, this adversity is going to change, you know, and not only that, but like Zoom, uh, which all of my yeah. attorney colleagues now were, right. were appearing remotely and doing virtual stuff as opposed to being in court. And I, what's great about it for me is I think it's showing the system that it can be done differently than the way it's Ingenuity. always been done mm-hmm. and done more efficiently yeah. and at a better price point. And yeah. it just, you know, so again, not even by voluntarily seeking out, we're kind of having uh, advancements shoved into That's our right. face. Right. So well, back in the day when I was in the construction consumer package goods world, uh, we would give promotional dollars away pretty readily. A retailer would want it, we'd give it away. When Walmart started coming to the marketplace and lowering costs, a lot of people complain about that in my world. It was great for the consumer, very difficult for some manufacturers and retailers. However, in the long term, it made retailers, other retailers, competitive retailers, and manufacturers 
operate a much smarter business. Right. So no longer were you giving promotional dollars away because you had a good relationship with the buyer somewhere. You had to measure those results. Right. And, and am I going to get best bang for my buck? So a lot of people in my world complained about Walmart, but I think in many ways, Walmart drove a lot of needed discipline. So through that adversity that that industry faced, ultimately became, I think, more streamlined, efficient companies as well, too. So again, through that adversity can... Well, it's can true. And, and 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 I'm not there yet, but I am going to want to talk to you about your training in martial yeah, arts. Yeah, and But but if you look at the UFC, the same thing can be said. No doubt. You know, you had the boxer, you had the wrestler, you had the karate guy. Brilliant idea. And, and you know, pretty soon you had a Gracie putting everybody on the ground and yeah. choking them out. And they're like... You got to adapt or die. You That's know, we right. got to figure this out. And then everybody got jujitsu and it's like, well, but yeah, you still need That's wrestling, right. but okay. But now you need dirty boxing yeah. and now you need boxing and striking. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can find it everywhere yeah. in, in our history of these. I, I've talked about it before. There's a book called Black Swan that talks about these black swan events in history where in a very short period of time, because of something that's happened, there's been great advancement that's because right. of that that's black right. swan event. And so right. um, this pandemic and, and what's going on, you know, with with the police and the Black Lives Matter and that I, I think are going to be these black swan events. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I believe Mother Nature treats, teaches us many lessons if we're willing to pay attention to it. One of my favorite uh, proverbs stay, I'm going to paraphrase a bit, uh, a diamond becomes, a gem does not be perfected, uh, only becomes perfected through pressure. Pressure. So I, yeah. I'm messing yeah. that up. But essentially, this ugly piece of coal Become. ultimately becomes this beautiful diamond through years of pressure. And I think that's a great metaphor for people and situations like we're going through now, that this is a chance to help us grow, again, grow, transform, and evolve. So without giving away the the goods, can you kind of give me just an overview on the book and kind of like, you know, what 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 can people expect with your training or in one of your seminars? Like what's kind of the overall outline of what it is that you're helping people do with this? Yeah, with the book or with my business? Well, I guess, is there overlap or is it there completely is. different? There, well, a lot of my workshop content is based off the content within the book. Okay. So uh, just going to the book first, the book is based off of four very strong pillars. One. Um, helping understand brain functionality, how our brain functions under duress and stress, and how to better self-manage our responses to adversity, not emotionally, but more rationally. Right. Now, I learned this. You'll like this. I learned this from one of my former Muay Thai kickboxers okay. about the brain functionality. So that part, I tie into that DISC behavioral assessment to help people understand what their emotional triggers are and what their responses will be. So if I'm in that negative, non-emotional state of freeze, fight, or flight, what are those things that trigger me into that stage? And what am I? Am I a freezer, fight, or flighter? So I can better self-manage. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So that's another element of the book. Uh, the third element is I interviewed over 60 highly successful leaders, both men and women across multiple disciplines, businessmen and women, entrepreneurs, UFC fighters, uh, professional and college football coaches, yoga instructors, oh, wow. again, businessmen and women. And, and I asked them a series of five questions about adversity, how they dealt with adversity, how they overcame it, how did they uh, what are what, how did they prepare for it, so on and so forth. And just the information they gave me was unbelievable, right. the, the effort put behind this. That's a third pillar. And the fourth one is my 31, 32 years of experience in business. So it's not a fluff book by any by any means. It's very fact-based, it's scientific, and it's uh, it's fun too. It's fun. It's so what types of businesses have you been working with? Um, 
it seems like it could apply in just about any setting. But Personal, you, professional development, any business. But my main verticals I focus on are I love that word verticals. Yeah. I've only learned the word verticals recently. recently yeah. And now I hear it all the time. It's like when you buy a car and all of a sudden everybody drives it. Now I'm hearing about verticals constantly. Yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the number one is consumer packaged goods because that's my background, basically. Sure. So that's a focus area. Another one is uh, architecture, engineering, and construction. One of my biggest clients is Stanley Black & Decker. So that's how that came about. Uh, another vertical would be um, uh, small business, entrepreneur uh, type. Of- you ever worked with any lawyers or law firms? No, I haven't. Right. And I think there's a huge opportunity. Yeah, I want yeah. to talk to you about <laughs> There's a massive opportunity there. Um, and then the last one is franchise type businesses. One of my biggest clients is Dippin' Dots. Oh, yeah. So my I daughter work- would love to talk to you about Dippin' Dots. Yeah, I'll work <laughs> with anybody, but uh, that's the kind of the verticals I focus on. And 90% of my business growth is word of mouth. Right. So when I get a win in a certain vertical, I'm able to talk the talk better. I'm able to connect the dots. And that's, uh, I landed Stanley Black and Decker and that opened up a whole new world for construction, architectural and, and engineers and other type manufacturers in that realm, distributors and wholesalers that has allowed me to grow that vertical as well. Now is the business you or do you have staff or how, how, how's that set up? I own, I'm, the, I'm my own employer. I don't want to manage people sure. anymore, but I've built relationships with other consultants in the okay. industry that I will recommend them and they will recommend me. So sometimes I will help another consultant if something's in my wheelhouse, especially, right. and another consultant will help me as well too. In addition, I consider myself a consultant. I'm not the end all be all to my customers. I go in and try to uncover my customers' needs then I build a relevant solutions for those needs. I can do sales training, leadership training, uh, team building, situational development like adversity. But my client may not need all those. It's incumbent for me to find what they knowing need. your audience. It goes right. back to exactly. that skill set that you're exactly you know training and teaching. Exactly. Yeah. Then building a customized program to meet those needs, whether it's workshop consulting. Uh, one-on-one coaching, whatever that might be. Um, in addition, if there's something not in my wheelhouse that a customer has a need for, I can reach out to one of those other consultant friends of mine right. and recommend them as a solution for my respective customer needs. Okay. So when did this book come out? And uh, the uh, beginning of 2008. Okay. So it's been out a little bit. Do you have a yeah. third one in the works? No. I, the, the, two, is, is, two is a good number. Oh, two is a good number. As I said, writing is very difficult for me. Uh, but uh, that book's my pride and joy, and I still have a lot of legs with that book. Well, that's, and, that's and, great. Yeah, I want to press that one. So how is it that you got into martial arts? Uh, about, what is it, shoot, seven years ago. I'm a, I used to be more of a runner. Uh-huh. And look at this body. I'm not meant to run. I'm, I'm a big, you know, thicker guy. Uh, so I started developing plantar fasciitis. Sure. So I'm thinking I have to do some other things. And I had seen at um, – at, um, uh, powerhouse gym, yeah. some coaches doing, I had seen other coaches do boxing with, uh, with their customers. So I inquired about it. And one of the trainers pointed, he said, that's your person right there. And it was a little 100 pound Filipino girl named uh-huh. Alyssa. Uh-huh. So I'm like, okay, whatever. But she had fought in the ring. She knew her stuff. So we first started boxing. Right. And, you know, teaching me the combinations. The f- she was great with fundamentals. And then um, after about two years, I started wanting to kick. I started getting into the UFC, wanted to learn about kicking. So I reached out to Gracie Tampa South. Sure. 
Was that uh, Rob Kahn or um, Rob and Matt Arroyo? Matt Arroyo, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they introduced me to kickboxing instructor named Eric Parker. Okay, who was, I don't know if you know Eric or have heard of Eric. I, I have, yes. Thirteen and O amateur, former yeah. SWAT team leader, Marine. Yeah, um, excellent coach, and he taught me a lot about the brain functionality piece too. That's who I. There's such on. a mirror uh, of the sizing someone up for a sales or, or just any kind of interaction with. With the fight sports, the combat sports, oh, yeah. it's it, but it's 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 less verbal and more other things, oh, yeah. you know. So oh, yeah. anyway, go yeah. ahead. But so uh, I, I actually fell in love with the boxing with Melissa. Yeah, fell in love with. But I started wanting to kicking, and then I really worked with Parker. I've had some amazing coaches. Eric Parker, a gentleman named Dan Rawlings. Are you okay. Dan? Rawlings? I think I've heard that name before. Dan Rawlings uh, was a professional for years. Fought in. Uh, a fight league uh, sponsored by Chuck Norris. I think it was called World Combat League. Sure. A uh, kid named Billy Quarantillo, who's now in the UFC. And now I'm working with Jalal Andato at, at Tampa Muay Thai. David's so, great and Jalal's oh, great. Oh, the yeah. fundamentals. I still am a fundamentals guy. I still go back to basic foot movement, uh, basic striking. I can do some spin things and some cute things, but... When I do that, I fall off the basic fundamentals. Well, yeah, and you're 100% right. So I got into jujitsu first before I got okay. into Muay Thai. Okay. And so I started training uh, jujitsu with Hobson Mora, who's now got schools all over the Tampa Bay area. And at some point through that training, uh, Hobson was uh, training for some fights that he was doing over in Japan. And he was at Tampa Muay Thai. So I went there and I met yeah. Ray and Jalal oh, yeah. and David yeah. and Angel and all these other people. And that was the best shape I was ever in my no life. Doubt. I was doing jujitsu four or five days a week. I was doing Muay Thai four or five days no a week. Doubt. And they were great because I didn't feel like I was cheating on one with the other. That's they right. were both, both just so different. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I came in thinking, Oh, my cardio is going to be great for Muay Thai because of jujitsu. Yeah. And it couldn't be different animal. Well, just such a different, a different <laughs> animal. Right. You know, David had a sprinting up and down the mats on our knees and yeah. you do your 2020s and yeah. you do all your other stuff. And you're just like, Oh my God, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, I, I love that. And it's such an intellectual endeavor that I don't think people always realize that both with jujitsu and with the, the standup sports, you know, there's such a easy ability to write it off as kind of a meathead type of Not at all. tough guy thing. But some of the most beautiful, <laughs> gracious people that I've met in my life, I've met, through that training, uh, you know, Hobson, just a beautiful human being, Jalal, David, yeah. just these sweet, Parker sweet men. Rawlings, no guys. ego at all. No. You know, they don't, they, you know, it, 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 you, it's, I, I've learned over time, it's the guys that don't throw their weight around that you got to worry That's about. Right. Oh, no, not doubt. the ones that do, no you know, but, uh, then the other part of it that I've just loved and, and, you know, with jujitsu and with the stand up is the combinations. You're, you're really having to analyze and think. Oh, yeah. It's not just a physical thing. It's very much an intellectual oh, thing. Yeah. So love it. Love it. Uh, going back to your talk sure. about, I, I love, I've fallen in love with martial arts, especially Muay Thai and martial artists, the salt of the earth people. And I have, let's go backwards. When I first started watching USC, I couldn't watch it. I go, what are those guys doing? They're nuts. What's wrong with them? And uh, being a former wrestler, what drew me in was watching Nick Diaz. Oh, yeah. Wanting to fight on his back. Right. I'm like, that is counter. The last thing you want to do yeah, is wrestle. Counter- yeah. So I start watching this. Then comes on Uriah Faber, Donald Cerrone, who, these charismatic guys who you tell are just such great guys. And I just fell in love with UFC. I've probably been to 20 UFC oh, wow. live events. I've probably taken pictures, have met over 30 fighters, and I would say this, the most gracious, wonderful professional athletes 
you'd ever want to meet. Not one has ever said no to a picture. Not one has never wanted to sit down and talk. I BS with Stipe Miocic one night for a half hour, just the nicest guy in the world. And um, just at salt of their people. Isn't he, isn't he doing a title fight again? He and uh, uh, Daniel Cormier. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the, it's the uh, rubber match. He looks like he's about a foot taller than him, too. He's huge, man. He, he's, a, he's a good guy. Or is it like a catchweight fight? Or are they both, I no, guess, both just heavyweights? heavyweights? I guess just the up. height. Yeah. Well, they announced today uh, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. And I was like, oh did, my God. did you not see that? <laughs> no, yeah, no. September, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. Oh, my God. I and I think they were like three or four weight classes apart. Now, Roy Jones Jr. has gotten pretty punchy in his life. I'm not super sharp on boxing. I have yeah, friends yeah. who are, but Tyson's looked scary lately. Like, yeah. have you watched any no, of his I, recent I, training videos? I, uh, no, I've no, I don't mean the tattoo. No, He's, I, he looks like his old self. Yeah. He's yeah. lost all of his weight. They show him now, you know, in his 50s versus his 20s, you're just going to lose something, but interesting to see for sure. Um, so, uh, I could probably talk fight sports with you oh, yeah. all, all the time. Um, so who's your favorite fighter? Um, probably uh, Donald Cerrone. I'm still a fan of GSP. He's, oh, yeah. He's done, Is he even fighting uh, anymore? No. Well, okay. there's rumor he'd come back and fight uh, Anderson Silva. Uh, Usman. Oh, okay. Usman. I'm a big fan of George Jorge uh, Masvidal now. Uh-huh. So it, the names are so different. I root very much for the former teammates, uh, Matt Matt Fravola, who's out of Tampa, right, right, and then Billy Corintillo. So it really runs the gamut. I, I just respect them all. I, as I said, I I know what this sport means now. I've seen Billy Corintillo is in the UFC now, and, and the trials and tribulations, the obstacles that kid faced and overcame to make it to the UFC. Is motivational. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, I've been. I just started this week watching the Last Dance on Netflix, the uh, Michael Jordan uh, documentary that was on ESPN, and uh, you're talking about people coming from these backgrounds, and it's interesting because while the focus is Jordan, the second, I'm only on episode two. Were you a basketball fan at all? Not much. Okay. No. Well, you know who Scottie Pippen is. Oh yeah. Uh, so Scottie Pippen was Jordan's right hand man, and oh, yeah. Scottie Pippen came from just absolute poverty like a huge family and you see what he came from and what he became and it was any other team he would have been the michael jordan on but he just happened to find himself on a team with michael jordan and so uh you know in some ways he could have he could have gone two different ways with that he could have he could have he could have caved or he could have played ball (coughs) no it's okay no it's okay um so anyway well i appreciate you coming on no, uh, if people want your services or want to find you how do they find your book how do they find you online how can how can my listeners find yeah, you yeah again the book is called in defense of adversity turn your toughest challenges into your greatest success and it can be found on amazon paperback hardback audiobook and ebook um, my business is called steve gavatorta group and uh, you can check my website out www.gavatorta.com g a v a T-O-R-T-A dot com. Uh, feel free to Google me. I have a ton of good stuff out there. I have a good YouTube site with a ton of motivational, professional, personal development information. And uh, lastly, feel free to email me, steve at gavatorta.com. That's awesome. And, I, and I'm definitely going to pick your brain because uh, I've, I've, I've started to suspicion that uh, the sales pitch that attorneys are giving <laughs> in consultations and on the phone could use a lot of work. So that's kind of one of the new muscles I want to start working out. Happy to work with you. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Pleasure.